Lord Jesus, we invite you to come and to move and to touch, to awake, to excite, and to help us to see what you want us to see during this hour. Lord, we pray that you would take our stone, stony hearts, and that you would breathe upon them and turn them into hearts of flesh so that we might feel as you intend us to feel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is all about movement. Movement. There's all kinds of words that Mark movement. In fact, we didn't read all of Mark chapter 1 because it's a little long. And in fact, all the chapters of Mark are, are pretty long. And it just goes from story to story to story. And the, the change to each story is then and immediately and right after this. And Mark just keeps on moving in these stories of succession. And the whole gospel, all 16 chapters, are marked by this rapid succession of stories. And it's a, it's a journey that Jesus goes on. It starts, the story essentially starts right after the, this desert uh, experience in, in, in Judea with John the Baptist. Jesus immediately goes up into Galilee. And for the first eight chapters, Jesus is wandering around Galilee with his ministry. And then in, in Mark chapter 8, there's a shift in the gospel in which Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He recognizes him as the Christ. And then immediately Jesus announces his, his mission and they begin to go on the way down to Jerusalem. That's the, that's the framework of, of, of the Gospel of Mark. It's basically two, two parts. Part one is, is chapters one through eight and part, chap, uh, part two is chapters eight and a half through, through the end, uh, end of the book. The north is the first part where Jesus is in Galilee and then he goes on the way to the south with a one-way ticket to Jerusalem. And Jesus has a very particular, singular mission. His mission is to go to the cross. And so the Gospel of Mark is actually uh, full of this term of being on the way. And that's where it really picks up in chapter 8. Jesus is on the way. Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to die for sins. He's on the way. It's repeated seven times beginning in Mark chapter 8. But the way is actually introduced in chapter 1 in verses 1 and 2, in which we hear the message from the prophets Micah and Isaiah that John the Baptist, the precursor to the Messiah, is here to prepare the way and to make straight paths for the, for the Lord, for the way of the Lord. So this language of the way, it's movement. And that's what the gospel is all about the good news of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, going to the cross to bear sins. This single mission, this single purpose. While the gospel is all about movement and Jesus is on the move, the impression one gets is that everyone else is stuck. Stuck. Stuck in their ways, stuck in their thinking, stuck in how they do things. Verse 16, beginning in verse 16, we have Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, these, the first disciples who are called. 
And if we did a character study of, of their lives, we'd, I think we could reconstruct some of the things that were going on. These were, all four of them were angry young men. They, had a, they dealt with the issues of anger um, as we learn about them. They had a fishing business, uh, a family fishing business. Apparently it was probably fairly successful. They had, ser they had servants who were helping. Uh, I imagine, you know, if, you, if you've been around fishermen or every, any kind of blue collar hard work, the, the testosterone is flowing and men get really angry and they share a lot of angry words with one another and there can be a, a whole culture of that. If you've ever been around, I've worked in construction and, uh, and there's a lot of anger going on and I imagine uh, that, that there was quite a bit of that going on, but things were going well and the family business was succeeding and they couldn't move, they couldn't change. They were a bit stuck. Or how about uh, Peter's mother-in-law, beginning in verse 29? She was stuck. She was stuck in bed, sick, unable to go anywhere. And if you've ever been seriously sick, you know that, well, you have purpose in your actions. And if you are unable to do those things, and when people have to serve you, it can be a bit of humiliation and, it can, and you can feel quite stuck. Or beginning in verse 40, we didn't read it, but we have the leper. The leper seems to be stuck in fear. He's an outcast. He's been uncared for. He's an outsider, unloved. And he's been stuck in such a pattern in which he does not even expect compassion or kindness from anyone. And that's probably the, the reason why he comes to Jesus in the way he does. And then in verse 21, we have the faith community, the synagogue, and it looks like they're kind of stuck too. They're stuck with boring teaching that lacks authority and transforming power. They're probably squabbling over minutia and they have some kind of spiritual blindness in which they don't even identify the man who has an evil spirit in their midst. Or if they do identify it, they can't do anything about it. They're stuck. Well, I wonder, do any of you feel stuck today? Do you feel stuck where, where you are? Stuck in your job or not having a job? Stuck in a family situation that feels hopeless and that you can't change? Are you stuck, sick in bed, perhaps listening? Or you know someone who's stuck, sick in bed? Is fear locking you down, making you stuck? Unable to make a change because there's just all these different reasons bouncing around in your head and you know what you need to do, but you seemingly can't do it. Are you stuck? Well, the gospel's good news, my friends, because the gospel is all about movement. The gospel gets you going, but it's repentance that gets you unstuck. And that's why I wasn't intending this, but the shape of this the rest of this message is about repentance. And that's actually how the Gospel of Mark starts, and perhaps it's a good theme to start on at the beginning of the year. Repentance. Repentance seems like bad news. Oh, oh dear, here we go. The angry preacher talking about repentance. Repentance is good news because it's going to free you. It's going to unstick you if you open up your heart to what God wants to do in your life today. So repentance, that's where we're going to start, just as the Gospel of Mark starts. And I want to shape my thoughts around three ideas, and 
uh, as I said to the, er, at the earlier service, I recommend you take notes. It might be hard to follow along, or you might kind of get bored from a boring teacher, but if you take notes, it will help you. And having sat where you've sat for many, many years, grab a, p a pencil in front of you, pull out your bulletin that's pretty blank on the front, and take some notes, I guarantee you'll make this half hour a little bit more beneficial, and you might just get something out of this. So three basic ideas about repentance. Are you ready? Here's idea number one. Repentance marks a shift in time. Repentance marks a shift in time. And there's, this is going on in two different ways in Mark. John the Baptist's message of repentance marks a shift in the history of time. It's all about the movement from the old era to the new. Gone hundreds of years waiting in silence for, the, for a prophet. And now here in the midst of the Judean desert comes John the Baptist preaching the message of repentance under the, verse 3, to prepare the way for the Lord. And what did John say? Verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's message of repentance, it marks a shift in the time of history in which, you know, we tend to think of, of, of time and history in, in 24-hour news bites. But there, in that culture, they're thinking in centuries or, or far beyond, which is probably the better way to be thinking. And the announcement that John has for the people is that everything's changing. The old is done. The new is about to come. The kingdom of God is near. The king has arrived, and you need to get ready. You need to change. You need to clean yourself up, which is part of the reason why John, in some ways, introduces a new sign and symbol of the new covenant, baptism. Now, it does have antecedents in the Old Testament. I think that's true. But in many ways, baptism is a, is a new sign for a new time in which now history has changed. That's what John is saying. God has come. The real king of kings has brought himself close. And so John's message of repentance marks a shift in history's time. But repentance has a second characteristic to it that we see that's going on in, in Mark chapter 1, and it's this. It's that John's message of repentance calls for a shift in the, indiv in the individual's time. So repentance is about a mark of history shift from old to new, but it's also a mark of the individual shift from old to new. John appeared like a prophet, like the prophet Elijah, dressed in camel hair, and his single proclamation is Face your sin. Look at yourself. You've got to clean yourself up because the king has come. He's come near. And that's what Christian repentance really is all about. It's about a shift that takes place within your own life. I've experienced that shift. I actually repented of my sin when I was just five years old. I remember going to church and coming home and sitting or kneeling at my bedside by myself, saying a prayer of forgiveness, asking God and Jesus to forgive me. As a five-year-old, I did this. 
And my, mar my life has been marked from that time ever since. Because when you enter into repentance, it's not a one thing that you're now done with. It now characterizes your, the rest of your life in which we continually live into this life of repentance, in which we have to constantly, repeatedly do it. I was hearing a story uh, about a 20, two 26-year-old men. This, is, this took place in 1904, October of 1904, in which these two men had been drinking quite a bit. They were drunk. And they got into a little boat in Boston Harbor, and off they went into the night during a, a cold, windy night. What they were thinking, well, they were drunk. And uh, the boat, as they got out in the harbor, began to fill up with water because it had a hole in it. They only had a one half broken oar and the ship, the boat filled with water. They went into the water and the first man drowned. The other man who tells the story, the other man cries out as he's in the waters realizing he's about to die, and he repents. He cries out to Jesus, asking for forgiveness. And then he writes, all of a sudden, a hand came down and took hold of me and held me from sinking, and I recognized the hand. All of a sudden, he says, I found myself in a bunch of kelp five feet from the, the shore of a little island, and there he got onto the island, freezing, and then he was found by some humanitarians who were watching over. They were called the Lifesavers Group. It's a group that existed for 30 or 40 years around the Boston shores. They found him that night, brought him home, and he lived to tell another day. That man is actually the grandfather of one of our elder candidates. And he ended up living a life, starting a ch helping to start a church in Quincy and completely committing his life over to the Lord. He repented, and it shifted everything about him. His whole life began to change. He went from being a foolish, middle-twenties drunk to now having a completely different purpose. That's what repentance does. It's the shift in the time of history, but it's also a shift in our own life. When should you repent? Well, friends, there's no better time than today Today, if you hear his voice, it says in Hebrews 4, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I know for a fact that the Holy Spirit is speaking to some person or people here today, wanting you to soften your hearts and to hear in a fresh and new way. So repentance marks a shift in time. Number two, repentance is also motivated by Jesus's identity. Repentance is motivated by who Jesus is, by his identity. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here we have, here in verse 1, Mark is introducing the whole gospel, telling us who Jesus is. He's Christ. That's not his name. That's a title. It's a it's a Jewish title for king, meaning anointed one. The one who comes in the line of David. He's anointed. This is the king. And then he calls him the son of God. This too has both 
a Hebrew background, but it also has a, a Roman background. And just so you know, we'll get into this in weeks ahead. But the Gospel of Mark is written especially for a Greek and Roman audience. It was likely written in the 60s uh, AD to a Roman people who were governed by the Romans in the Roman Empire and were dealing uh, with Caesar and the rule of Caesar. Well, it turns out that scholars have shown that it was actually the emperor, uh, beginning with Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus, whose official name was Emperor Caesar Augustus, son of God. And then there's been, uh, about 100 years ago, they found an inscription in the uh, ancient city of Prini, in which it honors Caesar Augustus with these words, and listen carefully and look at verse 1, to see if you see any parallel. The inscription to Caesar Augustus read, the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. So it would appear that Mark, who would be familiar with this very language of the emperor being called a God, and then all of Caesar Augustus's um, predecessors were called sons of God. They were considered sons of God. And therefore, everyone in Rome was called to worship. They call this the Roman imperial cult. Called to worship and pinch some incense to Caesar to demonstrate your loyalty and your gratitude because it's Caesar who has brought peace and prosperity to the empire. And so Mark, in no uncertain terms, in no uncertain terms, is using words of sedition because he's lifting up. He's lifting up Jesus as the one who is, in fact, the Son of God. Caesar is not God. Caesar is not the Son of God. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, Messiah. It's Jesus, the Son of God. This language of gospel, we also see this as kind of playing into this, the, the language of gospel, the Greek word is evangelion, where we get the word evangelical, means good news, literally means good news. And both the Hebrews and the Greeks use this term in reference to the, to the emperor, to the king. The good news, I, I read that, that uh, many times, the announcement of the king of, or the emperor of, of Rome, it was a good news. It was evangelion, it was the gospel. But what John, what Mark is doing in Mark, in verse one of chapter one, is that the gospel, it's a proclamation of a different king. And we see this also in the Hebrew scriptures, in which, well, Mark is multiple times quoting Isaiah the prophet. And it's Isaiah who uses the same language of gospel first in Isaiah 40 verse 9 which is he quotes Isaiah 40 this is just a little bit later it says you who bring good news to Zion good news to Zion go up on a mountain you who bring good news to Jerusalem lift up your voice with a shout lift it up do not be afraid say to the towns of Judah here is your God that's Isaiah 40 verse 9 it's an announcement of good news about the arrival of God. And then in chapter 52, verse 7, 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. What's the good news that's being brought? It's the person who says to Zion, your God reigns. So the point is, is that the proclamation of the gospel, what's the proclamation of the gospel? Well, the gospel is a proclamation about the reign of a king. That's what the, the background of the idea of this very word is. And the point is that there is a king, but it's not Caesar. It's not the emperors. You look at the record of the lives of the Caesars in the first century, and they were awful men, greedy and violent. And uh, during the time when Mark was written, Nero was the emperor. And you read about Nero, and he was utterly atrocious. And we'll, we'll talk about that in some weeks, weeks ahead. But we have a different king, Mark is telling us. We have an emperor who is truly the emperor and not only the, the true king, but it's the one who the father himself gives witness to. In verse 11, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You see, the, there couldn't be a, a more distinct contrast between the emperors of Rome and the true king. The true king who in he says about himself, he did not come to be served. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the king. That's the true king. You've never seen anything like it. We know what the rulers are like of the Gentiles, and we know what our own kings have been like in Israel. We know what our own rulers are like in politics in America. Jesus Christ is nothing like that. He is the true king. And as true king, he has spilt his blood for us. Isn't that glorious? He's given his very life for you. You owe him everything, but he gives everything on behalf of you. It's the most striking and disturbing message that one could ever hear. And it is the trigger. It's the motivation to repent. Because if this is truly who the king is, then indeed I really need to consider my life and to change. And so repentance marks a shift in time. Number two, repentance is motivated by Jesus' identity. And then finally, repentance is a movement of your mind for change. Repentance is a movement of your mind for change. Literally, the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which is the change of the noose, the change of the mind. And in the Bible, the mind is not about the brain like we would think of it. The mind is about the, what we would say, the heart. Repentance is a change of one's thoughts, as well as one's will, as well as one's affections, as well as one's allegiance. It's a, it's a complete shift of the mind. Now, I, like I said before, when I hear the word repentance, I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. Here's the angry preacher saying, you're so bad, you got to change. And maybe as we're sitting there, okay, maybe I'm feeling kind of terrible, some self-flagellation, do a little penance, but then you go home and nothing really changes. Reminds me of a joke that I heard about a man who after a 
a heavy night of, of drinking and arguing with his wife. He wanted to show his repentance and sorrow. And so he went to the backyard dragging the, the empty bottles that he, had, that, that he had drunk. And he picked up the first bottle and, and he smashed it against a rock. And he says, you're the reason why I fight with my wife. And he picks up the second empty bottle, throws it against the rock, glass going everywhere. You're the reason why I neglect my children. Takes the third bottle and smashes it. You're the reason why I don't have a good job. Picks up the fourth bottle and then he realizes it's full. And he says, well, you're clearly not involved in this. <laughs> no, that's not repentance. Repentance is actually I think has three interwoven concepts. So this is three subpoints under my third point. Third point is repentance is a is a change is a movement of your mind towards change. Now three subpoints, you ready? Repentance first of all begins with an openness to change. It begins with a willingness or an openness to consider change. Look at verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. It wasn't the preacher out in Boston Common yelling and screaming at people to repent. The people were actually going out to John to hear the message, which tells me that there was already something going on in their life in which they realized they needed to hear something new. Sometimes we realize the clothes that we've been wearing, they don't fit anymore. The answers that we once were okay with no, no longer make good sense. Being open to change is opening up yourself to discover. It's, it's like going on an adventure. Now, as soon as we think about adventure, well, it reminds me of The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins. When Gandalf came to him, inviting him to go on an adventure, his first response was this. He said, we're plain, the hobbits, we're plain, quiet folk. We have no use for adventures. Those nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. But Bilbo went there and he came back again. And he came back changed and different. Are you open to change? Are you open to new things? You need to be like Grandmother Shirley. This is Tracy's grandmother. Grandmother Shirley, who got remarried when she was 84 years old. The family was kind of surprised. Wow, 84, getting remarried to a man who was 85. And they were, in fact, they knew each other in high school and they loved one another then, but then he moved away and World War II took place and, uh, and they got disconnected and they, they ended up getting married and having children and living separate lives. And they were widow and widower and eventually he looked for her. They found each other and they were open at the mid-80s to change and to try something new. That's how you need to be in your spiritual life. Open to new things. 
open to change, willing to let go of worn out old patterns that don't work, getting rid of the tired answers and searching, searching for what God has for you. But if you're not open to change, then nothing, repentance is impossible. You've got to open yourself up to see what God has in store. That's the first initial move of this single concept of repentance. But there's a second, and it's, it's repentance looks within with a searching and fearless inventory of the self. It looks within with a searching and fearless inventory of the self. And if you're familiar with AA and the 12 steps, that's the fourth step. To use a searching and fearless inventory of who you are. To say, I need to understand, I'm broken. I've got this stuff in my life. I don't know why I do these things. I need to change. I don't know how to change. I don't even know why I do this. And it's this willingness to, to go on an adventure into the soul. That's the point. Many of us use denial. We use avoidance. We use all of these different tactics because we do not want to face a reality, the reality of the self. And it, repentance is this adventure to examine yourself with, without fear. Why, why do I have this arrogant spirit why am I so harsh with my words towards my spouse? Why can't I let go and forgive? Why am I so sl slothful? Why do I overeat? Why have I been so lackadaisical in my spiritual life? What's going on? Asking the question and now being resolved to figure out what's going on and not being satisfied until you figure it out. Are you satisfied with the way things are? Are you gonna open yourself up and do the work of why we're even here, of transformation of the self before and through the power of, of Jesus Christ through his spirit. He gives us the power to know ourselves and to change and to become like him. But you gotta do the work. We have to be like Jesus in verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. To do the work of self-examination of the soul requires time. It requires effort. It requires prayer. It requires the use of God's word and meditating on it, reflecting on it and reflecting on yourself. And it's this combination of prayer, of scripture reading and meditation on scripture, and of self-examination that's ruthless and looking at yourself. That's where change, good change, really begins. You've got a, well, I have a dog leash. And this dog leash, uh, as we were using it, got a knot in it. And kind of irritating, but forget the knot. And then Turns out knots kind of produce more knots. And over time, this thing had five knots and the leash went, got, was getting pretty short. Finally, I got so fed up with this thing. I sat down on the couch and I could not get, the reason why the knots were there, we couldn't move them with our fingers. It was too tight. 
to get a pliers, needle nose pliers. And I started to work this thing. Work the knot. And work it and work it and work it. And then finally, boom, it got loose. Took out the first one. Got to go to the second. That's the kind of work that we are called to do in our spiritual life. Searching and fearless, resolved to, to see the change in the Spirit of God by His promise in repentance brings about that change so we get unstuck. Well, there's a third movement of repentance. First movement is being open to change. The second movement is this, this fearless inventory of the soul. And the third is this. It culminates in confession of sin. Verse 5. The people went out to him, it says to John, and they were confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. And that's the, the final, I think the final step or culminating step in what repentance is all about. In which we acknowledge, after looking at ourselves, we look at our actions, we examine our attitudes, we look at what we've done, we look at what we haven't done, and we, we confess where we've fallen short. Oftentimes we're just not willing to do this because we're afraid. We're afraid about what we're going to find. We're afraid about the implications of admitting it. Admitting it to ourselves or admitting it to others. Confession of sin is an admittance. It's an admitting first to God. And then it involves admitting it to other people. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. It says in Proverbs 28, 13. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The scripture says in James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So if you open yourself up, if you do this inventory that I'm talking about, it will lead to this confession. And brothers and sisters, when you confess your sin, you are free, free. God frees you, the Spirit frees you, and the things that held you down, the things that were gra grabbing you and wouldn't let go, they no longer have any power. And you can get to the place where you can open yourself up and say, I was this, but God has freed me. And that's what God indeed wants to do. So repentance, the gospel is about movement, repentance, gets you unstuck. Are you stuck today? Then get free. It's right in front of you. And it begins with this movement of repentance, which marks a shift in time, which is motivated by a loving king who invites you. And it's this movement, this change of the mind. There was this 60-year-old man who started to have back pain. And uh, he did physical work, and he thought the pain was caused by some of the things that he had been lifting at work. And days went into weeks, and he was trying little ways to deal with it. Uh, he went to a chiropractor. That didn't, that didn't help. Using muscle relaxants. Uh, he was 
using more than the full dose of recommended Advil every day. Uh, he, was doing, he was doing all these little things, but the pain wasn't going away. And in fact, he was getting weaker and weaker. Uh, in fact, uh, as, as the weeks went on, he started having to use a cane. Uh, he then got to the place where he could not stand without holding on to something. But he was still making all kinds of excuses. Well, I'm getting weaker because I haven't been using my legs, so they're getting, they're getting weak. Uh, he had to sit in the shower because he could not, uh, because he could not stand. <clears throat> and he did this despite having a family history of cancer and also refusing the, the recommended screenings for, for someone of his age uh, with his particular family history. Finally, uh, the man, uh, after months uh, of just his condition getting worse, he, he fell down in his home and he couldn't get up. He couldn't stand up. His legs would not work anymore. He had to kind of crawl himself and call his sister. Sister said, we got to get an ambulance, which he finally, though he was avoiding the hospital and the doctors like you wouldn't believe, he submitted to that, got to the hospital, and he had to have emergency spinal surgery because of a tumor that had been growing increasingly against his spinal cord, which was, uh, which was limiting and then eventually uh, eliminating his ability to walk. Good news is he had the spinal surgery, he had physical therapy, and today he's walking. He's better. He's been healed. Brothers and sisters, repentance is kind of like this, in which we do not want to face the reality, and we do everything that we can to avoid it. But why wait till you fall on your face and you've got to call your sister to get an ambulance when you can do it right now? When you can turn to an amazing God who is waiting for you to turn to him and he will unstick you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do this work in our life. Do it for your glory and do it for our joy and may we see the transforming power of God in our life. Give us hope to try. Move us, O oh Lord, from our slumber. For your sake, amen.